37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 214. Uh, my dog, again, is snoring in the background, so there's some sweet ambiance. <laughs> uh, at the top, this episode is not going to be edited. I am just going to uh, slap the tracks together, put an intro and an outro on it, and call it a day because we're a little late getting started. Because, Preston, you were being just the brother of the year, doing your due diligence, taking care of your big brother. I was. So, you know, <laughs> is something's wrong with this heater. He didn't have any heat. And it's like, you know, 40. It's probably going to get really low tonight. Like, it only got up to 48 today. Yeah, and, uh, he, it's he, cold he, day in Kansas. And he called me and he's like, I need you to come look at the furnace. I don't know what's going on. And it it doesn't have, uh, like, some of your older furnaces have, like, a little igniter on it so you can relight mm-hmm. the pilot light, and this one doesn't. It's all controlled by a gas valve, um, and you're just supposed to turn the knob, you know, flip the power, flip the power back on, and for whatever reason, it's not working, so I, I drove down to, to Wally World and got him a space heater and made some phone calls to see if I could get somebody out in the next couple of days to... Take a look at it for him, so um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, good for you, man. That's the that's the family thing to do. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're in that weird phase of Kansas fall weather where it's can't make up its freaking mind. It's like 40 degrees outside, raining uh, all day long, and just colder than heck. So I'm sure he'll appreciate the space heater. I hope so. <laughs> he's well, like on this uh, episode. He's like Fredo, and I'm like uh, uh, Michael off The Godfather. So, oh, okay. I've never seen The Godfather, so I'm gonna assume that's a pretty well known reference. Yeah, somebody will keep, somebody will get it. <laughs> Probably everybody but me. There you go. <laughs> well, on this episode, you don't even know what the topic's gonna be because we. Um, well, we were putting off our cryptid encounter one more week because we were going to have Steve back with us, hopefully, Sunday when we record that. So we're going to skip the news and just jump right into the story. And this is the Great Amherst Mystery. Presto, does that ring any bells? Not a, a single one. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's fine. It's a fun little story about a poltergeist haunting in Canada. So if you drive about 40 minutes southeast of Moncton, New Brunswick, you'll come across the beautiful, peaceful little town of Amherst, Nova Scotia. It's perched on top of a little pretty little hill in the Bay of Fundy. Back in uh, 1878, a cozy, well-kept cottage in this quaint Victorian village was rocked to its core by the activity of Canada's most famous poltergeist, which, as a result, has been publicly named the Great Amherst Mystery. The activity in the case revolves around a 14-year-old girl named Esther Cox. At the time... 
Esther lived in the aforementioned cottage with her elder sister, Olive, who ran a household. The household consisted of Olive's hardworking husband, Daniel Teed, who owned a cottage, who owned the cottage. Oliver and Dan's two young boys, <laughs> Oliver, Olive and Dan's two young boys, we're off to a great start. Olive and Dan's two young boys, Willie and George, who were five and one, Dan's brother, John, and Esther and Olive's brother, William, and their 22-year-old sister, Jane. So it's a pretty, pretty big household. Well, Esther was said to be a strange girl, exceptionally moody, and unusually fond of pickles. Mm. But that's not really here nor there. <laughs> what a scandal, right? She had been a tiny baby weighing only five pounds when she was born at nine months old. Her mother unfortunately passed away when she was just three weeks, and her father subsequently remarried, kicked rocks, and moved to Maine, leaving poor Esther in the care of her grandmother. Now, under her grandmother's influence, Esther grew up to be an oddly serious yet old-fashioned girl. People would go on to describe Esther as having a disposition that's naturally mild and gentle, but she at times can be, however, self-willed and is bound to have her own way when her mind is made up. If she's asked to do anything she doesn't feel like doing, she becomes very sulky and has to be humored at times to keep peace in the family. However, all things considered, she's a pretty good girl and always has a born good reputation in every sense of the word. So stubborn-headed with a heart of gold. Well, one afternoon during the summer of 1878, a young man came calling named Bob McNeil, a subordinate co-worker of Daniel Teed, to whom Esther took a fancy to. Well, he invited Esther to take a ride with him in his carriage. Mr. McNeil drove Esther to a wooded area in the country, pulled off amongst the trees, and then suddenly pulled a revolver out of his pocket and aimed it at poor Esther. Well, evidently he was harboring some um, dastardly intentions. Esther just got pissed off, told him to go shove it, and refused to get out of the buggy. Well, right before Mr. McNeil could do anything unthinkable, the sound of other carriage wheels came down the dirt road, and McNeil got cold feet and then took Esther back to the Teed Cottage, where she rushed inside, passed all the family, and cried herself to sleep. Well, during the following days, Esther's distress was evident to the entire family. Olive and the rest of the family just assumed that Esther and Bob McNeil had simply had a fight on their outing and not being particularly fond of Bob and glad of his absence from the cottage. They decided not to press the matter. Well, later on the evening of September 4th, 1878, Esther and her sister Jane, who shared a bed and a bedroom, were just settling down for the night when Jane felt what she thought might have been a mouse crawling inside of her mattress. This frightened both the girls, who lit a lamp and searched high and low for the mouse, but were unable to find it. Later that same night, the sisters heard a rustling beneath the bed, so determined to figure out what the noise is coming from, they discovered a cardboard box under the bed that was filled with pieces of patchwork and fabric. Assuming the mouse had crawled inside the box, they ripped it from, out, from under the bed, dumped everything out in the middle of the room, 
where the box then jumped one foot in the air on its own and landed on its side. The girls screamed for Dan, who came to the rescue. Hearing their incredible story, he simply laughed and said they must have been dreaming, put everything back in the box, and shoved it back under the bed. Now the next night, Esther, who had gone to bed early on account of a fever, jumped out of bed in the middle of the night crying, Wake up, wake up, Jane! I'm dying! So her sister Jane woke up, lit the lamp again, and to her horror found her sister's face was blood red and her eyes were bulging out of her skull as she was in terror and trembling in her nightgown. Jane called for assistance and soon the entire family came running into their bedroom door, not knowing what else to do. They just laid there rocking Esther back and forth trying to get her to calm down until the red color drained from her face and she turned back to her normal pale self. She woke up from her slumber, and in a choking voice, she declared, I'm swelling up, and I shall certainly burst. I just know I shall. Well, indeed, Esther's hands and feet were alarmingly swollen. Her complexion now was a deathly pale, where moments later it had been almost beet red. And her skin was burning with a fever, where moments earlier had been icy cold. While Esther, in her body steadily swelling, writhed in pain on the bed, suddenly a tremendous sound akin to a clap of thunder erupted into the bedroom. Then shortly after, three loud cracks sounded underneath the bed, and Esther suddenly went limp, her appearance returning back to normal. When the family was satisfied with how Esther was recovering, the bewildered family members eventually returned to their own beds. The following morning, Esther seemed reasonably well, although her appetite was greatly diminished. Her family members, being unable to explain the bizarre incident of the previous night, decided to keep the matters to themselves. But then again, four nights later, Esther had a similar attack. This time, all the bedsheets being ripped off of the bed and thrown into the corner of the bedroom as if they'd been ripped off by some set of invisible hands. Jane, who had been awakened, also witnessed the bizarre spectacle and simply fainted from fright. Hearing Esther's screams, again the entire family rushed to the bedroom just to see a pile of bedsheets laying in the corner of the room. Olive got up, gathered the bedsheets, and put them back over top the two terrified sisters. And then, almost immediately, the bedsheets once again were ripped off the bed and flew into the corner of the bedroom all on their own. Now, before anybody had time to react, the pillow upon which Esther's head lay on was also ripped underneath her head and flew across the room, striking John Teed square in the face. Not knowing what else to do, all of the family, aside from John, who was just, you know, gobsmacked by a pillow, sat on the edge of the bed in order to keep the sheets from flying off again. After a succession of incredibly loud knocks sounded from beneath the bed, Esther's swelling again began to subside, and she fell into a peaceful sleep. The following day, the family decided to call the local doctor. When Dan Teed informed the physician of what had transpired, the doctor laughed and just assured him that no such nonsense could occur 
while he stayed in the house, which he intended to do that night until one in the morning. The doctor arrived at the Teed house at 10 a.m. that evening. I'm sorry, 10 p.m. that evening. He immediately examined Esther, who had already been in bed for an hour, and he simply deduced she had suffered from a tremendous shock of some kind. Yeah, no shit. She's being haunted. As he spoke to her, Esther's pillow suddenly began to move laterally until only one corner was tucked underneath the poor girl's head. The doctor watched in amazement and shock as the pillow then returned back to its former position without any external assistance. Did you, did you see that? exclaimed the doctor. It went back by itself. So it did, said John Teed. But if it moves out again, it will not go back, for I intend to hold on to it with all my might, even if it bangs me over the head again like it did last night. No sooner had he said this than the pillow moved again laterally out from under her head, as if to change and challenge the young man. Though John gripped it with all his might, the pillow subsequently slid back under Esther's head as if it had encountered no resistance at all from John. Shortly thereafter, loud knocks sounded from beneath the bed, and although the doctor examined the area from which the sounds had originated, he was unable to determine their source. He proceeded to walk about the room, knocking here and there. Suddenly the knocking began to follow him, sounding from the floor beneath where he walked. After about a minute of knocking, the bed sheets once again lifted and flew into the corner all on their own, immediately following a bizarre scratching sound coming from the wall behind the bed. When everybody in the room looked to ascertain the sound of the noises, they saw a disturbing message had been carved onto one of the walls in the bedroom. Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. For the next three weeks, the strange activity increased in both frequency and intensity. Esther's invisible tormentor began to pelt her with objects like potatoes, wooden planks, often in the presence of the family, and also made violent banging noises all throughout the house. A doctor who prescribed morphine to Esther in order to calm her shattered nerves went outside one evening when one of the banging sessions had begun and noted that from the street it sounded like somebody was standing on top of the cottage roof pounding on the shingles with a sledgehammer. One night later in the end of September, during another knocking session, Esther had a seizure in her bed and became cold and rigid. In this alarming state, she told her family members who were in the room with her about a traumatic incident which had occurred between her and Bob McNeil in a wooded area early in that fall, an incident which none of them had yet had any knowledge about. When Esther recovered, her family members told her what she had said. Although Esther had no recollection of making the confession, she tearfully admitted the story was true. Shortly after this incident, Jane observed the mysterious knocking often seemed to correspond with things that were said, as if the invisible agent that made the sounds could hear and understand the family. Dan decided one night to test the theory and asked the mysterious force to knock, to knock once for every person in the room. 
And sure enough, the entity responded with the correct number of raps each, which were violent enough to shake the entire house. Over the next three weeks, the family developed a method by which to communicate with the mysterious entity, which continued to harass them at random. In response to their closed-ended questions, the presence would knock once for a negative, thrice for a positive affirmation, and two when in doubt about a reply. Throughout October, the Teed House was visited by several clergymen, and different denominations began to filter in and out of the house, all who were hearing strange of the strange activity and hoped to see with their own eyes. A well-educated Baptist minister came away from the house convinced that neither Esther nor her family members were responsible for the manifestations. Instead, they theorized that the shock resultant of Bob McNeil's incident had turned Esther into some sort of battery tinged with electric power and that Esther emitted invisible flashes of lightning which caused small thunderclaps. <laughs> what a crock of shit. <laughs> Another man of the cloth, this one, a Wesleyan Methodist preacher, witnessed a number of manifestations at the Teed home, most of which were startling, involving cold water in buckets to begin to bubble and slosh as if they were being boiled, all the while the water remained icy cold. By the end of the month, all sorts of people from town were flocking to the Teed family in hopes of witnessing these strange manifestations. Some came away believing the entire thing was a hoax put on by the family. Others, including several religious figures, assumed that somehow Esther was simply hypnotizing people in order to make them hear what they hear what she wanted them to. She's a witch, most, burner. <laughs> Get the bitch. Mo <laughs> right, throw her in a pond, and if she sinks, she's not a witch. You've been thunderstruck, motherfucker. <laughs> most, however, left with the unsettling conviction that the manifestations were genuine and the Teed Cottage was indeed haunted. The manifestations continued with casual frequency until December, whereupon Esther contracted diphtheria. During the two weeks it took for her to recover from her illness, the manifestations ceased entirely. But upon her recovery, Esther made a trip to Sackville, New Brunswick, to visit another of her sisters who was recently married. And during the two weeks that she spent at Sackville, neither the sister's house or the Teed Cottage experienced any strange activity. But upon Esther's return to the Teed Cottage, she and Jane began sleeping in different rooms, hoping this might put a stop to the previous affairs. Instead, the activity simply got worse. In addition to producing loud noises and hurling objects throughout the house like potatoes and planks of wood, the unknown entity began dropping lit matches from the ceiling of Esther and Jane's bedroom all through the night, a phenomenon which all the family members were to witness. On one specific occasion, while Dan, Olive, Jane, and Esther were all in the same room, one of Esther's dresses, which was hanging from a nail on the back of a door, rolled itself up, then traveled underneath the bed led by some unseen force, and then burst into flames. 
On another occasion, while Olive and Esther were alone in the house making butter, a fire started in the cellar. Unable to extinguish the inferno themselves, the women went out into the street and frantically called for the help of a neighbor. A stranger passing by who they'd never seen before ran to the rescue and smothered the fire with a mat from the dining room. Without waiting to be thanked, the man walked out of the door and up the street, never to be seen again. Who was the bizarre stranger, and where did he come from? In the following weeks, this ghost began to finally speak to Esther, although only she could reportedly hear it. And then one cold winter night, while the family was lounging in the parlor, Esther suddenly rose to her feet with a look of horror and despair on her face and pointed her trembling hand at the corner of the room. Look there! Look! Can't you see it? My God, it's a ghost! Do any of you see him? But the rest of the family didn't see a thing. The ghost proceeded to speak to Esther, telling her that it would burn the house to the ground unless she herself left that exact night. Now, although none of the other family members could hear the ghost, Dan Teed didn't want to take any chances and asked a neighbor who expressed a great interest in the manifestations if he and his wife could take in his misunderstood and misfortunate sister-in-law for the night. The couple agreed and decided that best if Esther moved in permanently with the neighbor's house, with the neighbors in their house. Several weeks went on without any incident. Things seemed as though Esther had finally ditched the invisible tormentor. But then, out of nowhere, one day, while she was scrubbing the floor in her new home, the brush she was using disappeared from her hand. She told the lady of the house what happened, and she, the matron, and the lady's daughter, subsequently searched for the brush in vain. As soon as they decided to abandon the search, the brush fell from the ceiling, bouncing off of Esther's head. Now, discounting this incident, six weeks would go on without any major mischief. Then, mysterious fires began to appear in the new house, and the man of the house, not willing to run the risk of having his own home incinerated, asked Esther to spend her days in the pub he... <coughs> wow, puberty. Asked her to spend her days in the pub that he owned. Esther's peevish appendage apparently followed her to the new location, and all manner of incredible manifestations soon took place in the unfortunate pub. Much to the amazement of the patrons of the bar, one of the more noticeable incidents that took place was a small pocket knife belonging to one of the neighbor's sons driving itself into Esther's back. When the knife was removed and given back to the little boy it flew out of, whose hands it flew out of, it flew into the air again and inserted itself in the same wound upon Esther's back. Dude, this ghost is fucked. Yeah, like shit, dude. He want, <laughs> he want her dead. Damn. Twice in the back? Like, he, <laughs> I, I never know. stab a motherfucker in the <laughs> back. Shit. In oh. the spring of 1879, almost one year later, Esther traveled to St. John, New Brunswick, at the invitation of a certain military officer. During her three-week stay in the city, Esther was visited by a party of scientifically-minded gentlemen 
who developed a new method of communicating with Esther's unseen poltergeist. After asking the entity a question, they would recite the alphabet and wait for the thing to knock at the appropriate letter, repeating this procedure until the entire answer had been spelled out. By this method, the poltergeist identified itself to them as Bob Nickel and claimed it had once worked as a shoemaker. To the men's astonishment, other spirits began to make themselves known too. One entity called herself Maggie Fisher, while another called himself Peter Cox, and claimed he was a relative of Esther's who died about 40 years prior. Later on, three more more mild-mannered spirits made their presence known, identifying themselves as Mary Fisher, who said she was Maggie's sister, Jane Nickel, and Eliza McNeil. After a peaceful eight-week stay at a separate particular family who lived in Nova Scotia in a countryside house, Esther Cox finally returned to Amherst. The manifestations resumed immediately, as powerful as ever. At this point, an enterprising American actor named Walter Hubble, who had just finished a theatrical tour in Newfoundland, moved in with the Teed family as a paying boarder in hopes of documenting the manifestations. Apparently all recorded in a book called The Great Amherst Mystery, over the course of six weeks, Hubble was pelted with inanim inanimate objects, including potatoes, saw household items vanish and reappear as if dropped from the ceiling, and watched objects levitate and translocate, also witnessing several fires break out, all in spontaneity. All the antics had an air of mischief, as the poltergeist were doing their best to annoy their guest and the family. Hubble also noted the ghosts refrained from their delivery during the Sabbath. Convinced that Esther was incapable of conducting the pranks herself, Hubble began to converse with the poltergeist using the same techniques the Teeds had developed. The ghost accurately told him the time on his watch and guessed how many coins he had in his pocket. Hubble then went on to ask the spirits the following questions, in which they answered according to the appropriate knocks. Have you all lived on earth? Yes. Have you seen God? No. Are you in heaven? No. Are you in hell? Yes. Have you seen the devil? To which it replied with a thunderous knock for yes. On June 28, 1978, the Teed House resounded to the sound of a trumpet. The strident noise continued throughout the day until in that same evening, a small silver trumpet fell from the ceiling and landed in one of the rooms. Neither Hubble nor the family members of the Teed family had any idea where a trumpet could have came from, as though none resided in the cottage. Although Hubble later declared his intention to donate the instrument to a museum, the fate of the object, to the best of the author's knowledge, remains a mystery to this day. It simply vanished. The manifestations increased in scope and intensity until that summer. It was decided that Esther Cox had to leave the Teed family.
family's home for everyone's sanity and everyone's sake. After embarking on a brief speaking tour with Walter Hubble, during which she was heckled by audience members who believed her to be a fraud, Esther Cox went on to live in a home of a friend of the Teed family. And shortly after her arrival to the new home, the family's barn burned down and Esther was accused of arson. She was subsequently sentenced to four months in prison, but was released one month later on account of good behavior. After being released, Esther went on to marry a man who had come to visit her during her imprisonment. Following her marriage, the poltergeist activity finally had stopped for good. Was this the case of a jolted lover, or was the Amherst cottage truly haunted by a pack of wild poltergeists? So I, I think I <clears throat> solved the mystery. <laughs> Did you? I know, yeah, I know <laughs> what this is. Um, so, uh, remind me again, what, what did you say? 1850, 1880? Uh, 1878. Things? So, um, you know, typically they say that poultry activity always takes place when you have like, uh, somebody in their teens, uh, uh -huh. who's got, got a lot of like, you know, angst and, uh anxiety going on and uh you know they're, right, they're going right. through puberty and then i don't know like the they just their inner self acts out and causes all this crazy sh shit to happen so you know 1870 now i'm not saying that we're all a bunch of sluts nowadays but uh back then you know you, you didn't have premarital kick your rocks off sort of activity mm -hmm. it was very frowned upon so maybe, just maybe, I'm going to throw this out here, that uh, she was sexually frustrated and going through a little bit of uh, anxiety there and uh, was causing the own poltergeist activity. And uh, after, uh, you know, the, the being put in jail and maybe she went to like a nut house for a little bit, maybe got some enemas because they did that back in the day. She got married, her new husband knocked her rocks off and the poltergeist activity went away, bro. Huh. Well, from what I've read and what I've, you know, learned from documentaries, it does seem as though poltergeist activity does predominantly take place around prepubescent and early teen females more than it does a male. So who knows, man? Um, it definitely becomes interesting when you look back, like you said, back in the 1800s and the early 1900s. You know, women were blamed with being hysterical all the time, and the only way to cure the hysteria, supposedly, was to give them an orgasm, which also gave a great excuse to a bunch of pervy doctors to sit there and, you know, unfortunately, sexually abuse and molest women and, and uh, children in some cases, saying that, oh, no, I'm doing this for your own good. You're crazy, and I'm going to fix you. And, you know, that's what they just thought. They thought women were crazy, and so that's what they supposedly needed. So, I don't know. Um, maybe that could be the case. Uh, not her being crazy, but just the uh, the pent-up frustration and anxieties, you know, manifesting themselves into a uh, physical poltergeist-like activity. And then it is curious that it goes away after she gets married. And I don't want yeah. that to come across as, you know, sexist, but... Again, I haven't heard too many cases uh, in, in my own quote-unquote research of poltergeists really taking to a lot of, you know, yeah. 
boys or, or men. It's usually uh, females from what I've seen. So, and then like her inner self was like so pissed off. Like I just, I just want you to go bang Tommy down the street, goddamn it! So then I'm sitting there like stabbing her in the back, and then you know she finally gets married, and it's like, oh yeah, my inner self is calm now. Thanks. Well, I, <laughs> that's bizarre. I want to stab yourself. Let's just say that. Who are we to judge? I, I read a small excerpt of that out of one of my books, and then I went on to a website. Oh, what's it called here? Da, 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 da. A doot and doot and do. Thank you, Luna. What website is this? Come on. Mysteriesofcanada.com and found a very lengthy tale that I just read you guys. So I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what other people think. Um, comment on the Instagram and the Facebook. Let us know what you think it could have possibly been. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, let's jump out of here, shall we? Now, next time around, we'll be doing a cryptid encounter. We should have Steve on with us as well. So I don't know. Could be a lengthy one because I know the last few episodes have been kind of short. So bear with us. Yeah, we might make and it up last... to you and give you give you a big two hour one. So <laughs> maybe, maybe so. There is some extra stuff I could pack in there if it kind of starts to go a little light. So now we want to announce that uh, coming up on the weekend of November. 13th, we're doing our semi-annual Pixelated for a Purpose, where we will get together with our good friend Corey of Pixelated Plays, and we will be playing video games for 24 hours straight, raising money for local children's hospitals. Now, we couldn't do it last year because of COVID, but the year before that, in 2019, uh, together, you and I, Preston, along with Steven and Corey and Rob... Uh, who surprised mm -hmm. us at Corey's house? We raised a little over twenty six hundred bucks um, for our cause, which is phenomenal. Um, things are a little different nowadays, so I don't know if we'll come anywhere close to that. But every penny raised will be going to a good cause, and then each of us are picking a local hospital of our own to donate the proceeds to. And every penny that we raise goes towards that. We don't take any money out for pizzas. Or anything crazy like that, all the money raised goes straight to the cause. So we'll be kind of advertising for that. We'll be posting some links. If you guys want to make some donations, it'd be fantastic. If not, we still love you anyway. But yeah, I'm uh, anxious to see how much money we can raise this year. Presto, you got any housekeeping, anything to announce? Mm, no, other than my usual <laughs> stuff. I don't there you know go. Okay. There yet, well, Perfect. Well, let's get out of here then. Check us out on the Instagram, PXL Paranormal. Check us out on Facebook, the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. We just got another five-star rating on iTunes, so that is fantastic. Um, guys, gals, ghouls, everybody, please, if you would, if you're on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review. Uh, Five-star ratings are great, but we also want to hear from you all uh, what you think we're doing great, what you'd like to hear us improve on. Yeah, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear that. Preston, what do you got for us? And as always, if you need beard, if you want a beard, hell, if you want to grow a beard that won't get jealous and uh, cause uh, anxiety to pent up inside of you and burn your fucking house down, then go over to BigDopBeardBombs.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Dundee Cedar, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh Citrus, Mint, and Classic. Oh my God, your beard's going to be lush. It's going to 
just ooh, it's gonna look so good that your beard will do itself. And uh, so get it all, get it adopted. <laughs> all right, there you go. If you're in the Wichita area, please go by and see our friend Leslie and the gang down at CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. And otherwise, that about does it. So on behalf of Big Steven, I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the Paranormal Highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.